The emphasis, as I said earlier, is in Psalms today. God the King in Psalms. A while back in a sermon, I mentioned that there was a study that would come out uh, every other year, <clears throat> and it's put out by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. And what they do is they try to evaluate uh, w what do professing Christians believe, and then also just people in general with different religious beliefs or irreligious beliefs. W what do they think about God? What do they think about the Bible? What do they think about morality? And so actually, just uh, a little over a week ago, this year's survey came out. And among the majority of professing evangelicals, and how they define evangelical is someone who believes they must trust in Jesus Christ for their own salvation. They say they believe in the authority of the word of God, and there's a couple other stipulations. But amongst profess professing evangelicals, who said that they must trust Jesus alone for salvation, the majority of them said that God accepts the worship of uh, Judaism and Islam. That's the majority of professing evangelicals. Then 43% of professing evangelicals stated that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. 43%. And then almost 50% said that they believe that God learns and adapts to culture in different circumstances. Now, as I read these kinds of findings, I'm once again reminded, actually, that many people, and by the way, this study is just within the American uh, culture, okay? But I, I'm reminded once again that people who fill churches Many of them, half or more, don't believe foundational truths that Christians have held to for millennia. In America, it seems as though you can walk into a church, feel good about yourself, and walk out and not really be introduced to God. I mean, my question is, is what do you actually believe about God? What God do you actually serve? Because listen, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you don't believe Jesus. Jesus is God. If you believe that God learns and adapts to different situations, then you're not believing what God says about himself in the Bible. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is not to have a whole sermon on this, this survey. But I, I bring this up because I want to talk about one of the reasons why we're going through this series on God's mercy through judgment. In our modern-day churches, I think that people are shirking away from talking about a God who judges. And even in saying that right now, you might be feeling some tension inside. You might be thinking, oh my goodness, Pastor Timothy, please be careful. You don't want people to get the feeling like God is just an angry God and that's all that he is. And you're right, I don't want people to get that feeling. I'm opposed to previous generations who seem to primarily or even supremely preach a hellfire and brimstone God. But 
I am concerned that I think we have pendulum swung to a new extreme, where, where now it's as though God is a very soft God and hugs everyone and accepts them no matter what and doesn't talk about sin or condemnation. And even using that word condemned right now might make many people think God is mean. And I, I personally believe if, that, if that's your kind of thinking, I think it reveals more of how the culture has affected you than the Bible affecting me. That's one of the main reasons why I have this series, why we're going through this. And, and, and it's not just that I'm preaching here so that we would know that God judges. But, but my desire and my hope and my prayer is that we would behold more of the glory of God because if we don't know God and who he is, we're missing out. We're missing out on life. We're missing out on glory because we don't know God as he has revealed himself to be. And so I'm going to read this passage that I've read the previous weeks in this series from Exodus 34. And as God comes to Moses, we read this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then we're told, and Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. God reveals his name, which is another way of saying God revealed his glory to Moses. And once God revealed his glory to Moses and stated these things, guess what? Moses' response was not, yikes, God, that's a little harsh. Oh my goodness, you need to get a human PR agent because we've got to like tone down on this visiting the iniquities on the third and fourth generation kind of thing. Can we just set that off to the side? No, instead, what we're told is that immediately, quickly, Moses bows down to the ground and worships God. Ventura, I'm, I'm concerned. My soul is burdened for people, not only in the world around us, but for people in churches who have lost sight of who God is. They've lost sight of his glory. So my question to you is, do you want to know the glory of God? Do you, does your heart resonate and say, God, show me your glory. I want to behold you with eyes of faith. If that is your prayer, then we need God the Spirit to reveal to us God's mercy and God's judgment. Now with that said, moving into today's sermon, I do want to give a little bit of a backdrop of previous weeks in this, just to bring us all up to speed. Kaiki preached last week, and there's a little bit of a break in the series. So if we go back to the first week, what I did was basically give an overview of the entire Bible from beginning to end, and we were introduced to how the Bible uh, reveals God to us. That God is the creator, he is the, the sustainer of life, but he is also life himself. 
And he created human beings in the most privileged position possible. And human beings are utterly dependent on God for everything and, and utterly dependent on God for life itself. God is life. And then we saw humans have rejected God. Therefore, we see you can't reject life and have life. That's what I kind of worded it. Human beings have rejected life. And if you reject eternal life, then you get eternal death. And yet, even in the midst of that sermon, we saw how God showed mercy through his judgment over Adam and Eve. That he judges, but then he says there's going to be this one to come who's going to crush the serpent. And then we go through the scriptures and we see many examples in the scriptures of how God judged because of sinfulness, but then also how God is promising mercy to creation all the way until there's going to be a day where God has a final judgment and there will be no more sin and a new heaven and a new earth and there's going to be a perfect world. But God does all of this to summon people to look to him and find life in him. In the second week, we took a smaller uh, portion of scripture, just the Old Testament, but then I even narrowed it down more to talk about Jacob and his wrestling. I wanted us to see how through Jacob, who is an example of Israel, I wanted us to see how God reveals his mercy through judgment to the nation of Israel, and that's an example of how God relates to the world as well. And so we saw uh, Jacob's life and how Jacob always was heel-grabbing for control, and he didn't trust the Lord. But there is this, this pivotal moment in his life when he wrestles with God, and then it seems as though he surrenders, he submits. He saw that God is, is better and so we looked in the nation of Israel and also saw how they would wrestle with the Lord because Israel refers to the name Israel is he prevails. God prevails. He wrestles and wins. And the question that comes to us is, are we going to wrestle with God and see him win? Or are we going to turn to our own ways like Israel did so many times? Because again, remind ourselves, if we reject God who is life, the consequences of judgment are condemnation because you can't have life. You can't, you, can't, you can't reject life and have life. Now, right now, even still, some people might be feeling uncomfortable with what I'm saying. And some people might say, why do we have to emphasize this idea of judgment with God? And I'll just give you an illustration. Hopefully it's helpful. I remember years and years ago when, uh, I think before, yeah, before Tracy and I even had kids, we were driving from South Carolina where we used to live up to Illinois and uh, uh, we were getting close to Indianapolis and we wanted to stop for lunch. And so we got off, got our fast food, got back on the highway and enjoying our food and enjoying the drive. And, and I don't know, 30, 45 minutes down the road or something, one of us comments like, oh, that's interesting. There's an outlet. It looks exactly like that outlet we saw earlier, but it's on the other side of the road. Huh, funny. And we went, a, we went a little bit longer, and then there's that weird bridge, if you know what I'm talking about, um, in Indiana, and we're like, huh, I didn't know they had two of these <laughs> in this state. And that's when it hit. Oh, my goodness. We've been going the We went the wrong direction after we got our food. Because we're thinking, how long did it say it was till Indianapolis? It was only supposed to be 10 miles. Why have we been on this road, for, you know, this long? Now, thankfully, we found out, and as soon as we find out, what do we do? We turn around, right? Why do we talk about judgment? 
Because you don't know, we as human beings will not turn if we don't know we're lost, right? You need to know you're lost if you're going to turn. And that's what the scriptures tell us. We can proclaim a message all day long. God is love, God is love, God is love. But if you don't know, if you don't know the judgment that human beings deserve, what does love mean? If we don't know we're lost and that he is sought after us, what does love actually mean? What is the weightiness of it and the value of it? Humanity has turned from God and is lost. And humanity is on a highway headed to eternal judgment. And God shows us this throughout Scripture in order to summon us to turn to his mercy. Now, some people still will say, you know, how can this be who God is? And some people even say, I could never worship a God like this. And maybe you're thinking that. And if that's you, I want to direct our hearts to the sermon today and direct our hearts to the book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms is actually turned to by so many for practical encouragement. How many of you, in the midst of difficulties and pains, you didn't know where else to read in the Bible and you just opened up to Psalms? Yeah? Most of you here. Maybe all of you at different points in time. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to go to a Psalm. The Psalms are read by people in various trials and difficulties. We love them because they're so applicable to life. They're encouraging. They're relatable. And they lead us to the God who is in control of everything and is going to make all things right. And the Psalms as well, they don't mince words. They don't mince words about God, that God does whatever he does because he does whatever he pleases. Nobody can stop him. He's the king. He's the ruler. And the Psalms also are very specific, even as, as it speaks to us on how God relates to the world. God is king. And we are under his rule, and human beings have committed treason against him. But what I want to show for today in the main idea is that the Psalms reveal God as the king who will bring mercy through judgment to the whole world. Psalms are very specific, and what we emphasize even here this morning is the reality of him being king. So I'm just going to jump in to the Psalms here, and we're just going to break apart this main idea this morning. The Psalms reveal God as king. I want to emphasize this point in this part of the series because God isn't just a good option among many things. And even thinking through how, how I believe many people in our day think about trusting Jesus or trusting in God, they, they, they view how people might communicate to me is they view trusting in Jesus almost like Jesus is a nice addition who's going to prop up my life. So you hear the phrases like, Jesus is my co-pilot, right? Man, if Jesus is my co-pilot, the plane's going down, <laughs> right? I mean, Jesus, Jesus is more than a co-pilot. Jesus doesn't come into our lives to make our lives better. Jesus gives life whole new life. What we were living was death. Jesus is life. Do we get that? Christians, that, that, that God is not just an option among other things. God isn't just a support system so we can do what we want to do. God is king. God is ruler over all. Do we know that? 
And, and since he is king, we should have that type of response to him. Recognize, what does it mean then for us if God is king? Well, let me, let me just read some psalms that talk about his kingship first. Psalm 22, 28. Oh, actually, that's not the right verse. So let me read it. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Kingship belongs to him. Psalm 66, 7. God rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nation. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And just, just those three passages. Who's king? God. God is king. And to act against the king, to use our verbiage, what is that called? Treason. To act against, to act against a king is treason. And we, we even saw that when we looked in the nation of Israel, their grumbling and their complaining is, is defiance. It's rebellion against God, right? God is all, and we saw, this, we saw this in previous weeks, God is all that is good and beautiful and best. He's the summation of it all. So to act against him who is good, beautiful, best, and is life himself is then to commit treason against the king, which means that we should be punished by the king. If the king is just and right, God must act in justice. But what we see here in the Psalms is the same message we saw throughout the whole scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. He is the king who will bring mercy through judgment. This past week, Kaiki was telling me about a psalm he was reading for his devotional time and how encouraging the words of the psalm were. And then at a certain point, it kind of turned shocking and almost humorous. I'm going to read to you these verses. I don't have it on the screen behind me. Just listen. And it comes from Psalm 139. Many of you are familiar with that. But let me just read these words. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Beautiful words. Then. This is what comes right after that. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Why do we, what? Kind of sounds odd to our ears. God, you are so good to me. Thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness of me. You don't stop thinking about me. You listen to me. Kill those people. <laughs> what, what, what's going on there? What we see in that psalm is a perfect example of mercy and judgment, right? Now, David is the anointed king, which means he is the representative of God's rule in the nation of Israel and to the other nations around. God is going to bring one anointed one to come at some point that is going to crush the serpent. But David is an example of this one. So David's received mercy, right? But David is also communicating the judgment of God. And if you remember, by the way, whenever we see the judgment of God expressed in the Old Testament, the design of God through judgment is to extend mercy. Remember that? We, we saw that a little bit more two weeks ago. But God, God 
doesn't allow us, or he, he's not wanting us to simply experience the weight of our sin or experience judgment or feel the weight of condemnation so that we could just live under it. God does this, as we saw in another portion of Scripture, so that people would turn and repent. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn and repent. We see this over and over in the Psalms, this, this call that when we see how God judges, people should respond to that judgment by saying, oh God, I need you. and I want you. This reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 9, which while Paul is talking about something else, it reveals the character of God. Where Paul asks the question, what if God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I'm just going to stop here. When he's talking about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, he's talking about people who don't trust uh, Jesus, people who are still in their sinfulness. But he says, what if God has been patient towards them? For what purpose? In order to make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. It, it, it's, it's, it's funny because Paul's asking it as though it's a question, but that's the reality of what the scriptures say. When God brings judgment, he does it with the purpose in order to show mercy. And that's what we see in the Psalms. You can't know, you can't know fully mercy if you don't know judgment. Now, I think that the truth of judgment and mercy is extremely clear in Psalm 2. And I'm going to ask you, if you could turn your Bibles to Psalm 2 or whatever device you might have that has Psalm 2, and if you don't have a Bible and you don't have a device, I'm sure somebody in your row would be willing to share it with you. Um, and if you aren't able to follow along, I'll try to read it to make it make sense. It was read earlier in the service as well. But Psalm 2 comes at the beginning of the Psalms to help us to understand how God relates to humanity. And we read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, what do we see here? At the end of this psalm, Psalm 2, we read, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that's actually a really important phrase in this psalm because it connects us to the beginning of Psalm 1. If you have your Bibles, just look right at the beginning of Psalm 1. And what's the first word of Psalm 1 that we see? Blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. 
But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You start reading about this blessed man in Psalm 1, and if you compare yourself to the blessed man, like, hey, maybe that's me. You know, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. But you have to ask yourself, do you do it perfectly? If you really evaluate yourself in comparison to the blessed man of Psalm 1, anybody qualify? Don't raise your hand. None of us do. We'd be like, "Ah, I'm not the blessed man. Yet somehow there's this blessed man who's able to stand in the judgment, which means he's going to make it through the judgment when God judges him. There is a blessed one, a blessed man. And listen, we know none of us qualify because Psalm 2 starts off with what? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Are you a part of a nation? Are you a person? Yes. So why do we rebel against God? Why does every single human being do this? That means none of us are the blessed man. That means left to ourselves, none of us are going to be able to stand in the judgment, right? None of us. And so what does God say in Psalm 2? He's trying to wake us up to the reality that we're on the wrong path. We're going the wrong direction. And we know we go the wrong direction because how does he describe human beings? They say, let us break the bonds apart. What is the feeling that human beings have about God? Oh, God's just trying to constrain me. God's trying to keep me from doing things that I want to do. Let me break the bonds. Which is that, is that true? Is God trying to keep you from great joy? No, because the summation of joy is God. And yet in our sinfulness, we say, God's trying to keep us. God's trying to keep us under from having joy. And yet, where does this psalm go? He shows us the destination. He shows us how people are acting, how people are responding. And then, and then we see this son that's being spoken of, who is also the Lord. And we read, kiss the son. Kiss the son. What does that mean? It's actually, it's a kingly term. A kingly idea where you would bow down and get down and you would kiss the foot to show worship and homage. And then the psalmist says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Refuge in him. When you submit to him, when you, when you go to him in humility, even in your sinfulness and say, you're the one who's worthy. I need you. You found refuge. And by the way, when do you seek refuge? When everything is good and awesome? No, it's not. You see, the, the world might think, oh, we're trying to break these chains and we want to be free, but God will open people's eyes to say, whoa, this is actually bondage. And this is killing me. My sin and my sinfulness is killing me. I need to take refuge in him to rescue me from this. And so the psalmist says, blessed are the ones who take refuge in him. Why? Because the blessed man has, will make it through the judgment. Anyone who is taking refuge in the blessed man will make it through the judgment too. Amen? Amen. Praise God. And so maybe you're here and you say, can that actually be true? Can I be restored and forgiven when I've been sinful against God? Will God love me and have patience with me if I turn to him? Yes, he will, because we see in the Psalms as well that this God who is king will show mercy through judgment to the whole world. Anyone, anyone who turns to him, 
Do you realize how many times the psalmist don't just talk about God's mercy to Israel, but talks about God's mercy to the world? You should, sometime, if you're just studying the Psalms, note how many times the world, all the nations are mentioned. I'll just read to you a couple real quick. Blessed be the glorious name, his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Or bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Are human beings part of God's work? Yes, they are part of his work. Do we live under his rule? Yes. Then God designs for all of his creation, especially people, to know his glory and worth and to live in praise of him. And that takes us back to Psalm 2. Humans will either continue to embrace their way and reject God, or they'll take refuge in the Son. But how do we know? How do we know that if we surrender and submit to God and go to him for forgiveness and reconciliation, that he'll actually forgive us and love us? The Psalms actually tell us that too. And one of the very, what I'm going to say, very direct prophetic Psalms, in Psalm 22, 14 through 18, we read how it can actually be that God would accept us and show mercy through judgment. Because it's so specific, I want you to hear these words as if Jesus is saying them. Because clearly, they point directly to him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is written a thousand years before Jesus came to this earth. We're not missing the parallels, are we? Piercing hands and feet, garments and lot by being taken by lot, seeing his bones because of the torture that he endured. You know, the reality is, is that when Jesus came to this earth, while he did endure the anger of human beings, the Psalm 2 nations who were raging against him, what Jesus also endured on the cross was the justice of God the King. The justice that we all deserved in the face of God because of our sinfulness. What we see in the Psalms, what we deserve like what David says, punish them, slay the wicked. We have two options. Either we're slayed or this blessed man is slayed on our behalf and we find refuge in him because he took the eternity's worth of wrath and condemnation in the place of sinners on the cross. Do you believe in him? Have you bowed before him and trusted him? When I think about Jesus on the cross, I'm reminded of the psalmist's words in Psalm 85, righteousness and peace kiss each other. 
We've talked about the conundrum of righteousness or justice and peace. The exodus that he forgives and will by no means clear the guilty. How do those two things, how can they both be true? They can both be true in Jesus on the cross, that Jesus takes the justice and gives us peace. Wow, what amazing grace that we have. The Psalms reveal God is the king who will bring mercy through judgment to the whole world. And I'm just going to stop there for a moment. Do you know this king? Jesus is the son who is perfect. He's the son who is Lord and king who comes to restore people from every nation and tribe. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Have you experienced the freedom that only he can give? If so, let's rejoice in him now in just a moment as we celebrate communion. And if not, I pray you would turn to Jesus now. You would trust him, find rest and life for your soul. Or if you have more questions about him, talk to me or somebody else here. What does it mean to trust Jesus? Believers, let's stand. Let's stand and hear these words. And as you even stand, let this be a reminder to you. Let it be a reminder to you, Christian, you will stand in the judgment. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.